Hello, and welcome to The Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of The Maid's ongoing effort to preserve this history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. Life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, but thanks to the support of people like you, we're working to bring you history through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. My name is Red. My name is Anthony Morila. And here's Chun speaking. Nice to meet you. So this week we'll be chatting for a bit and then uh, we'll lecture about the history of arcades from the origins of pinball and some analog arcade games to Space War and the early hacker culture that led to the first first computer games. Finally, we'll wrap it up with a quick game review. Now let's talk about the news for this week. So um, Nintendo has recently released the 3D Mario pack. So Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, and Mario Galaxy are all the 3D Mario games made by Nintendo, of course. The Mario 64 is on the Nintendo 64, Super Mario Sunshine is on the GameCube, and the Super Mario Galaxy is on the Wii. But they are now all in the Switch. It's pretty fun. I've watched some of the gameplay of it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Mario 64 was definitely a large one that I played when I was a kid. Mario Sunshine always looked really pretty because I didn't have a GameCube, but all my friends had the GameCube, and Mario Sunshine just looked like such a happy game. Yeah, for me, because I, I don't have, I don't ever own Nintendo 64, but um, I've spent quite a lot of time in Mario Galaxy before when when we were still on the the Wii machine. And I have to say, it, it is a very wonderful game because I, I really love music. And the Mario Galaxy, it's really a game that, uh, I, I want to say it's almost a textbook style of how music should be implemented into the game. Yeah, I've seen a playthrough of it. And whenever they play it, the music is always just really good. And it's very mystical and space-like and they do a really cool job with each world it's also just interesting to see that a 3d platformer based on giant spheres and not flat ground yeah that was an interesting mechanic for sure yeah yeah these new ports of the mario games uh they come with significant changes um most notably mario 64 it's getting an upgrade to 720p from its original 2040p so you're gonna see 2040 yeah (laughs) so um there's a lot of upgrades in the frame rate, uh, 30 frames per second. A lot of the sprite-based elements, such as the text, uh, the contours, and also the HUD have gotten um, a little bit more of a touch-up, so it looks a lot more crisp and clear. And this is the same for Sunshine, uh, which has been upgraded to 1080p. It has a wider field of view, uh, 30 frames per second, um, upgraded HUD, as well as Galaxy, which has been upgraded to 1080p and runs at it 60 frames per second. So a lot of these uh, these games are going to get a little bit more of an upgrade to their visual presentation. Yeah, I'm like I'm curious about like they did like the Mario 64 on the DS with like kind of remastered so is this just really crisp looking angular mario or is this slightly more rounded mario it's uh it's a little bit more crisp definitely um they've also uh gotten rid of a number of glitches but probably the most uh notable glitch is the backwards long jump which is very popular with the speed running community. So unfortunately, you won't be able to do that in this version. Well, that'll just be an interesting thing for those speed runners to try and 
do now. Work right. without it. Yeah. <laughs> Find a new glitch. There is an issue right now, though, because it's a limited release from Nintendo, and it's going to be only digitally available until March 31st of next year, 2021. And it's also only... There's only a limited amount of copies, so there there's a lot of talk about it being abused by resellers and scalpers because it's three super popular games that everybody loved, but they're only releasing a limited amount physical copies. That makes sense considering, you know, Nintendo always likes to sort of protect um, themselves against, yeah, like scalpers and whatnot. And and it makes sense because, you know, all, all these games, they're sort of, you know, classic sort of uh, iconic games. So, yeah, I can definitely see why they would sort of go for that. Hopefully they do something like make it so you can only order a limited amount. So, yeah, I, I certainly, certainly hope that, that, that that's how it's going to be, even with like the limited copies of everything. But copying other things is also Alex is going to get into in the segment talking about the uh, early arcades. Unlike unlike Mario today, where there's a limited copy, you could literally take it to a copier, put in the code you wrote, and then get a brand new copy of it. And that's how the uh, some of the original games that Alex is going to talk about played on the original computers was big tape rolls. So that should be interesting to hear from our founder and director, Alex Handy. Hello, uh, I'm Alex Handy, the founder of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, and it's time for me to fill the middle of this podcast with my weekly ranting on whatever topic we have picked. And this week we have picked the early days of arcades and gaming. So we're going to try to cover things that happened before 1970. I am by no means an expert on these uh, these items. I would highly recommend you look up the uh, Pacific Pinball Museum and other uh, early arcade preservation organizations of that nature because they actually have much better and more uh, articulated timelines for these early periods. But I will start. Hell, you know what? We can go all the way back to ancient history. Uh, Jay McGonigal's book references ancient peoples who, while experiencing famine, would take one day a week and make it game day, some kind of game. I don't know what game. Game they played, but it was very interesting and occupied them all day long. And nobody ate on that day. They just played the game. And that's how they coped with having a famine. They just all didn't eat one day and they played a game. And games have been used for centuries as methods of distraction and entertainment. I mean, we could go back to early Greeks. We could go back to even before the Greeks. There's games like Mancala, which have existed for thousands of years. Basically, all you need is a piece of wood with some divots in it and some stones. Very easy things for sort of tribal societies to build. Uh, there is a lot of history in the Wikipedia of very early games. There are games that the Vikings played, the Romans played, everybody played games. Uh, most societies had dice. Dice are mentioned in the Bible, for example. They've been around for a long time. Dice-based games have been around for a long time. But really what we're looking at here when we talk about the era of time wherein the modern arcade sort of began to formulate, or at least... The machines that we used in modern arcades began to formulate. Unless we wanted to take some kind of divergent path into, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century clockwork, we could go all the way back to the times of the ancient Greeks where they supposedly built clockwork devices on roads, but we're not going to do that. We're going to start with the Bagatelle. 1871 is when that was patented. Uh, the Bagatelle is, it's a, it may sound like a strange thing in description. It's a piece of wood with a bunch of nails in it and a spring and a piece of, uh, like a ball that you would shoot into it. But really when you look at it, it's, it's, it's pinball. 
I mean, it's laying out the foundations of pinball. It's a piece of wood. It's not covered. There's no coin slot. Uh, there's really not a lot going on in terms of bumpers or mechanics, but it isn't. You are pulling a spring, firing a ball, and then seeing where the ball lands. I mean, actually, it's a little bit more like pachinko. Bagatelles were sort of parlor games, uh, the kind of thing you would have uh, for maybe a kid or even maybe an adult just tittle around with in a parlor, kind of like billiards or a card table, just another little amusement, something to do. Over time, bagatelles got more and more intricate. They were still in the homes. But in the early 1900s and times moving forward from there, you start to see actual arcades pop up and like vaguely bagatelle-like items did appear in those arcades, but really what we know as modern pinball was not really formulated until the 1930s by uh, Gottlieb and uh, other fellows. Again, not my area of uh, expertise. The Pinball Museum, uh, Pacific Pinball Museum, has a lot of great information on this stuff. But in the early 1900s, I don't know how old people listening to this podcast are, but if you ever went to, say, Disneyland or Disney World in the early 80s, they used to have some of these coin-operated machines that they would have in early arcades from the early 1900s. They would have the the flips, uh, the little postcards full of uh, images that would flip. You put a penny in and you see a little movie, uh, like, you know, somebody dancing moving around or a fight or a sword fight or a gunfight or something interesting or if a little fairy tale they used to have these at disneyland and you would still run them with a dime or a penny those are the sort of machines that you would see in an arcade at that time as well as sort of skill machines the skill machines get more and more elaborate uh and i really can't talk to the early 1900 stuff but once we get to say like the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s you see things that look like an arcade cabinet but inside, it's like a little guy on a motorcycle, a little plastic guy on a motorcycle, and there's a track that he runs on, and you're you're moving the handles of a motorcycle left and right to move the actual physical guy on the track, right? And, and maybe it gives you a little score for staying on the track, maybe it doesn't. It just rolls for a little while. There's a, a handheld game, sort of a, a desktop-y handheld game that used to exist in the 80s that was a little motorcycle track. It was basically what I just described. You would have a little handle, and you'd push forward and it would make a really loud grinding noise as it rolled the track in front of you on a, a little spindle and the, it would light up and you'd try to keep the motorcycle on the road and if you went off the road it would beep at you. Uh, these are the sort of things that were in the arcades. There was like a helicopter game with a helicopter's mounted in the middle on a stick and it would just go around in a circle and you'd try to pick up a, a dude on a hook or uh, things, honestly, that are very similar to the concepts that you see in early arcade games in terms of what you're trying to do, except these things were created in an analog fashion with physical items. Another thing that was common in these early arcades is puppetry or scenes. Uh, the Musée Mechanique in San Francisco has a terrific collection of this kind of stuff. One of the things, for example, they have is the size of a dining room table, like a very large dining room table. It is encased in plexiglass, and inside is basically a carnival, a little miniature carnival with little figures, like on the Ferris wheel and on the carousel and at the little stands. And you put your quarter in, and for like 20 or 30 seconds, things move. The carousel rotates, the, the Ferris wheel goes around, light, things light up, little guys move around. It's all mechanical. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff like that in the Museum Mechanique. Some of them are your early shock games, right? Like Mortal Kombat is not the first game to have like been a bloody arcade game. And frankly, Chiller is not the first arcade game to have been like bloody and controversial. Uh, and you probably don't even know what Chiller is. Go look up Chiller. It's like it makes Mortal Kombat look kind of tame. Uh, it's from the early 80s. It's a, a light gun game in the arcades where you, you're shooting people who are hanging on the walls and like dismembering people. It's really quite 
offensive, or at least violent. I don't know if violence offends people. It does me. In the early 1900s, there were similar puppetry things. So one of the puppetry things at the Musée Mécanique is witness and execution. They actually have like two or three implementations of this. Each one is a different name, but it's basically the same machine. You put the quarter in, the curtains open, and there's a little puppet with his head on the block, and the guillotine comes down and it chops off his head. Plays like a little... And then curtains close. You got your 25 cents work. <laughs> so one of the things I guess I'm trying to convey here is that Arcades existed long before video games, and the shape that you say video games in in arcades was not an arbitrary decision by the people who created arcade games, or, or video games. It was a shape and form factor that was already designed and delineated over about a half a century of evolution in existing arcades. Another thing I'd encourage people to go watch, I love this cartoon. There's one, a cartoon, I can't even remember the name of it, but Donald Duck goes to the arcade, right? It's this great, there's this like... There's also one in the where he goes to like the house of the future. There's a couple of these. Maybe they're the same one. The guy, the robot comes up, says, "Your hat, sir." Anyway, that is an example of what an early arcade looked like, where Donald's in there putting his quarters in to try to scoop up little marbles with a, a little uh, a backhoe, a sky crane, or thing. You know, it's 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 he's like rotating a little fisherman's rotator. And it makes a steam shovel turn and pick up little marbles and then he rotate it the other way and it would put them over to the slot and drop it. It's a skill crane, right? Like these are the sorts of things that existed. Before the 1970s, there weren't any digital games in the arcades. There weren't any games with screens. There weren't any games with really, you know, immediate interaction or... Well, I mean, I guess there were. But really what I'm trying to convey is that all of the games were completely analog and physical and like... A, an actual physical object moved for your entertainment. There were, there were no screens. In fact, one of the earliest examples of a video game that usually people mention and I, I often reference is Tennis for Two. Tennis for Two is from 1958, and it's literally just an oscilloscope uh, with a little bit of electronics hooked up behind it. And if you know what an oscilloscope is, or you don't know what an oscilloscope is, rather, uh, it's that thing where you it's a screen and there's a little line on it going boop. It shows you the little spiky line. That's all an oscilloscope does is it has basically, it's a cathode ray tube with an electron emitter and that emitter goes in one line. It's just a dot. And so it just shows you that dot and the dot sort of hangs around a little bit afterwards on the phosphorescence of the cathode ray tube. So that's why the line that you see on an oscilloscope is sort of like very bright at the front and then sort of trailing off in the back and then the last bit of the line sort of slowly vanishes. Anyway, Tennis for Two was implemented on an oscilloscope, and it was basically a game where two people sat down with a button, and a, I guess it was a knob, uh, and this was the first game controller in 1958, and uh, it was created by William Higginbottom, and it was just that the ball would go over a net, and it's 2D from the side of the tennis court, so you're not looking over it. So it's basically just a, it's a straight line with a line up in the middle, a little short line in the middle, and then the ball goes back and forth over that line in the middle. That's the net. And when it comes on your side of the net, you push your button very loudly, ka-chunk, and it would knock it back over the net. Uh, very, very simple game, but definitely the first sort of what we modern day would call a video game. I don't think that this was digital. But what we think of modernly as a video game, something that is played on like a, an illuminated panel, a CRT, a phosphorescent tube. I mean, honestly, you can't restrict video games to cathode ray tubes because they're played on non-cathode ray tubes all the time. There are video games that have no visuals. There are video games that have no actual screen involved, but whatever. We're just going to say like a video game. I mean, it's an apt term. Argue all you want about whether video game is an apt term, but it honestly, honestly is probably the best way to describe these things. A game that is played in some sort of visual video presentation. Anyway. 
Tennis for Two 1958 is basically its own little thing over here, right? Like it's over it's over in Brookhaven National Laboratories. It's not really a big to do about it. It's not there's not like movies and videos and people passing it back and forth and talking about it in colleges. It's just this thing that happened. A very important thing, the first thing. Uh, but it really doesn't have a whole ton of influence across the industry. What really does have influence across the industry is Space War. Space War is created in the early 60s, possibly even earlier. It's a game created for the PDP-1. And the PDP-1 is a four-refrigerator-sized, maybe three-refrigerator-sized computer. Trust me, in the 1950s, when the PDP, the personal data processor the, from Digital Equipment Corporation, when the PDP-1 was shipped, everybody was absolutely floored by how small it was so three to four refrigerator sized that's that was absolutely it was a microcomputer. <laughs> anyway the pdp1 was a very neat computer and because it was sort of smaller and more affordable and more usable than previous computers mit and stanford and other universities picked them up and actually allowed the students to use them and learn on them and one of the things that the students would do is they would write software on a piece of paper tape. So imagine a very, very, very small roll of tape, maybe the size of a, uh, a raffle ticket, a piece of paper, sort of like the size of a raffle ticket. And it just has little dots punched through it, little holes punched through it. And each, each hole is a one or a zero. You would take this paper tape and feed it into the PDP-1. It would go like read it in, you know, over a minute or two. And then it would sit and it would think and then it would run the program. The cool thing about these paper tapes was you could take a paper tape, put it in a paper tape copier, and 20 minutes later, you would have a direct copy of that piece of software on another piece of paper. And because they were made out of paper, it's cheap, you know, it's just, it was really easy to copy software. So Stephen Slug Russell, working at MIT, a member of the Tech Model Railroad Club, which if you don't know about the Tech Model Railroad Club, all modern, <laughs> all modern fun things come from the Tech Model Railroad Club. Bunch of people at MIT who are really into model trains. Stephen Slug Russell builds this game called Space War. Space War is basically two spaceships in zero gravity sort of shooting at each other. Imagine asteroids, the, the ship from asteroids, take it, make another ship from asteroids, and then have them try to kill each other. That's Space War. No asteroids floating around or anything. Although some versions of the game have a sun or a black hole in the middle where things get sucked into and can be destroyed. Anyway, not only did Steven Slug Russell, who is a wonderful individual, and you can still meet at the Computer History Museum if they are able to reopen anytime soon, uh, you can play him in in the original Space War on a PDP-1 if you go to the Computer History Museum. It's one of the greatest experiences you can have in uh, computer history. Steven created this game, and he was not stingy with it. He copied that tape, and it went all over the country. It went to Stanford, went to the University of Utah, went to all over. Because of that, there were various versions, because once you get that, you're not just going to like, well, if this is fine, I'm going to play Space War. You're like, I'm going to modify it. I'm going to add to it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to do, you know, we're going to add proton torpedoes. We're going to add Klingons. People did all sorts of stuff to it. And by the end of the 70s, we'll get into this in the next podcast, but by the end of the 70s, uh, two competing groups were basically implementing it as an arcade game, and only one of them really succeeded, uh, and that was Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari. But that's 1971, and we're not there yet. We're going to put a pin in uh, computer space for now. Uh, during the 60s, all sorts of other games sprung up on computers that were far more powerful than the PDP-1. The PDP-1 was sort of the beginning of a generation of known, what were known as microcomputers, computers that um, students would have access to and could share time on through time-sharing operating systems and could actually be allowed to do what they wanted with 
because they were powerful enough that, you know, one kid couldn't completely ruin the entire computer department's week by writing a single program. Uh, you know, previously to this, previous to this point, to access the computer, you had to have a reason in any organization, right? Like an IBM computer inside of a company was like this multi-million dollar thing that did payroll and, and like did the end of year calculations of taxes and revenues. Like, it was the core of the business, and it was kind of like we can't, we gotta keep it running. Any ten seconds, it's not running. We're losing money, and we're not doing. Gotta keep it running, keep things going. So in the '60s, they came up with something called a time-sharing operating system, or a time-sharing system where you could schedule your jobs, right? Like so, that IBM machine can crunch all day, and at night, the insurance department can do a little experiment from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. This creates that sort of hacker culture, right? Like if you're going to do something on a computer and it's interesting and nobody else is doing it, nobody wants you to do it, you're up at 4 a.m. because that's the only time you can schedule time on the computer. That sort of attitude permeates this era and we get a lot of hacky things. You get things like NetTrek. Uh, you get uh, Colossal Cave Adventure comes up, I think, in the 70s. Uh, but you start to see like these sort of overnight hack project games that come up and get passed around. Maze War is going to be one of these. We'll talk about that in the 70s. But Maze War does not come out of like a group trying to make money. Maze War comes out of a bunch of scientists at NASA with extra time on computers and some really, really cool desktop machines. Uh, that's that's sort of just want to set the stage of what we're looking at here and where a lot of the cultures of today come from. So, you know, again, the arcade cabinets come from machines that predated video games. And this culture of hacking comes from the fact computers were really hard to get time on. And the uh, final thing I want to point out before we're done in this episode is where the home console came from, right? We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about digital gaming or playing game on a screen and, and computers and that history and the arcades, but like where did the video game console come from? And the honest truth is that came from Ralph Baer. Uh, you've probably seen this story around the internet. This is not an untold story. Ralph was the undeniable creator of the home video game console. Not only did he create the brown box in the late 1960s, which was the device that created the idea of Pong, uh, although, to be clear, the brown box is a lot more difficult than regular Pong. Like, that thing had a number of knobs. It has an English knob. Like, once you hit the ball, you can change the direction that the ball moves. You literally, after you hit it, you control it wherever you want it to go. So, uh, go look this videos up on YouTube and watch what the brown box does with Ralph Baer. It's, uh, it's, it's just like any really good engineering product. It's really, really, really cool for somebody who has been playing with it for a very long time and has a lot of skill. Uh, and that's kind of what the Magnavox Odyssey home console was about. And we'll get into that one next. It comes with the plastic overlays for your 12-inch TV, and it's basically the brown box with a bunch of other things it could do. But literally, all that thing did was draw a couple of squares on the screen. And Ralph, while being incredibly intelligent for having put something like that together to begin with, an incredibly talented engineer, he's also to be commended for being so creative for figuring out how to have fun with two to three boxes like of light on a screen like that's i think the more impressive accomplishment uh, you know you work with what you have just like mancala was sticks and stones and pieces of wood the early video games were bursts of light on a screen there there were no representations of real world objects there were almost abstract art just like tennis for two is literally two lines and a dot this is two boxes and another box that moves like a ball between them. And the soul of creativity 
the, the ability to come up with something fun to do with that. And not just something, but like 12 or 13 different games from roulette to skiing to haunted house. All these great ideas that they created with the Magnavox Odyssey are, are is it's really an interesting start to an industry. Typically, when an industry gets started, it's like a thing, a hula hoop. A, a horseless carriage. It's not like a horseless carriage that comes in pink and purple and green and is fun for mom and dad. And you know, it's the Magnavox Odyssey really sets the tone for the world's console uh, wars and the incredible sort of uh, I don't know flamboyancy, the, the sort of over the top console descriptions and aspirations that come over the next three three decades. I mean, I don't know that Ralph Baer could have quite predicted where all that was going to go. But the enthusiasm, the creativity, and the insistence that this is really neat, you need to pay attention to it, is something that, that really starts here with Ralph and the Odyssey in like 68 when he's creating it and 72 when it ships. And hopefully I will be able to get uh, Frank Cifaldi on here for the next episode, maybe, or maybe the one after that. And he can go into details about the Odyssey because I think he knows more about the initial shipping of that product than anybody else on the planet at this point. Anyway, I have overstayed my welcome. I hope this was interesting to everybody, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you to all of our Patreon donors. Let's see. I'm going to do a couple more names here. Uh, thank you to Anthony Chun, Miles, and uh, Red for doing this podcast, of course. Uh, and thank you to all of the other volunteers who have made the maid possible. Uh, there's a lot of people, as I keep saying, who have made the maid what it is today from uh, people who have taught classes like Mike Pavoni and Al Swigert and Vita Rogers and Nanette, who is uh, Nanette, Nan and Vita, who are education directors, uh, other folks who have helped along the way. I, I, I'm just going to cut it off here. I'll add some more people in the next episode. But thank you very much to everybody who has made the maid what it is. And I'll see you next episode. Thank you, Alex. So as we get into everything else, what have you guys been playing? I'm quite a MMO fanatic, so I have been playing Final Fantasy XIV for quite a while. Nice. Yeah, it's a very good game. Nice. It's not only a good game just because this game is fun. There's a very interesting history of this Final Fantasy XIV game. If I say 1.0, you know what I mean. Hmm. So I don't know if people heard about of it mm-hmm. or not, but Square Enix actually destroyed this game once and rebuilt it for another. That's from the version 1.0 to 2.0. And the story behind it is amazing. And it just makes me adore the producer Yoshida P very much. I mean, it's, it's a legend in the gaming industry, I think. <laughs> and they make the game very fun. I mean, the whole rebuilding from the ground up i was like that's kind of unprecedented that's yeah it's really, really cool that they did it's that it's really interesting and on the other side the game design is very good um so uh, this game is actually designed to let people play this game when they want to play it unlike other games because nowadays we see some other games it's pretty grindy they want the players to stick on the game every second of their life and they have to do a lot of stuff to in order to get the stuff done but for final fantasy 14 they have a different philosophy under that because this game was first developed uh facing the market of japanese the salary man and i think it's not a news that those salary men is all is always overworking and they always work until like 
8 p.m. and then go back to the home and don't really have too much time to play the games. So um, the idea of the producer is to let those people have time to play games. So they make the playtime of the game very flexible. So you can spend an hour a day and you can choose to spend five hours a day. It doesn't matter. You get the things done. But it just, if you want to do more, there's more. But if you don't want it, you can just leave it there and you can still follow the main update. And I think that's a really good game design to help people to maintain their work life and game balance because I, I think people have an experience that in lots of time we just keep working and feel too tired for game but this game just helped me to deal with that problem so mm-hmm. and sometimes I get on the game and I'm not even fighting any monster or going to any dungeon I just talking with my friends in there and just sitting in our house fun what's your favorite class in my favorite class I want to say I'm a scorer, but I did not concentrate on fighting, so I actually cook a lot and I fish a lot <laughs> in the game, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the main point of this game. I, I yeah. one of the one of the most interesting in there. And there's another job that I really like it is a bard. Mm. Because, oh nice yeah because yeah. you can you can literally play piano play the trumpet play the flute or just play anything i've seen people connecting their midi controller into the game and just just stop playing wow yeah that's that's pretty wow no that that's really sweet that's yeah. super cool that's really that's really really <laughs> sweet and they even have percussion i think in in a, a few previous version they just in they just make a new system for that so people can play together so it's not just you playing you can now play on time with your friends it which is very sweet yeah and it's like you, that seems like one of the better situations uh you know covid related situations that you could go in and <laughs> yeah that's uh, a place where actually you go. experience live music <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty cool I'm I'm intrigued now. I'm okay. I'm really intrigued. I'll have to, I'll have to give it a shot this coming week. Yeah. Check it out. Oh my god! I know if it's Final Fantasy. How cool are some of these summons? Summons. Oh, uh, they actually have a job called the Summoner. So, uh, if you are if you are a Final Fantasy fan, you know what I'm talking. You can summon Ifrit, Garuda, Titan, Shiva. Yeah. She, oh no. Oh, the Shiva is the one for the. In Final Fantasy, oh, I'm not supposed to make spoiler. Don't make me make spoiler. Oh, oops. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but you can even make Phoenix or Bahamut to fight for you in Final Fantasy 14. So that's all I can say. I'm not going to make any more spoiler. I'll get too excited and spoiler. Don't make me do that. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Well. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about the 70s, the early days of modern console gaming. If you got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who kept the maid afloat. Patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Anthony. I'm Red. I'm Chen. And have a nice day. And we'll see you next time, guys. Have a good one. We would like to thank Aaron Sheroff for composing the theme song for The Maidcast. 